Welcome to the Creative Curmudgeon. Today, I will be speaking with Phoenix-based playwright and journalist Ashley Naftool. Ashley, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak with me today. So how did you get into being a creative person in general? A, a combination of things. I mean, for one, I was like just like um, a rabid reader when I was a kid. Uh, I read constantly. Um, to the point where, like, when, like when, when, when my parents we would go out to like uh, a friend's house for dinner, my dad used to pat me down to make sure I wasn't like smuggling a book in with me, because I would do it all the time. Like, if you were gonna go to dinner somewhere, like I'd take like a hardcover book, like a fantasy book or something, and like I would just retreat into a corner and just read for hours. And he's like, "You have to talk to people," and I'm like, "I'd rather read." Which sure, um, yeah. I've gotten a little bit better about that over the years, but I still, that's still kind of my first impulse. Um. So yeah, I, I read a lot, and I just it's one of those things. When I was a kid, I I, I would write papers in school, and my, my teachers always like, "Oh man, you're really good at writing. You're really good at writing." And then it kind of stuck in my head, like, "Oh, you know, maybe I could give writing a shot." And you no, know, I was terrible for a long time. I, I, wrote, I wrote a lot of poetry in high school, and uh, I actually found a binder a few years ago, like all of my high school poetry, and it's. <laughs> like I, I, I pretty much have written my will that when I die, that 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 kind of gets burned because it's so it's so bad. But it's just fascinating to read my old stuff, being like, yeah, like the sincerity of it, but also just like it was trying so hard for, for like profundity, and it was just, you know, you know how you are in your fifteen or sixteen, like you don't know shit. Like, but everything I thought was like clever, or profound. Those poems is just like not as deep as a puddle. I had I had that desire to write, and I, I got really into like storytelling. But like, for most of my twenties, I didn't really do very much with it. Like, I, I had all these big ambitions. My, my my first mistake was I had these huge ambitions. Like, I I, I would write these like, um, these lore books of like fantasy novels I was gonna write, and it, like, and it was just it, it was like such a big project that I, was, I never did it because how could you? Um, so I just kept tabling stuff, and um. And one day, two things happened to me. Like, one is I, I signed up for this writing workshop with Kim Porter at a uh, 55. And the other is uh, somebody, a, a mutual friend of ours. Uh, I saw that documentary, Hi, My Name is Ryan, at the uh, Phoenix mm -hmm. Film Festival. Yep. And that documentary actually really was like, um, I mean, this in a good way. It's kind of a soul-destroying moment for me watching that. Because I was like, what is my excuse for not doing anything? Like, here's this person who's like, you know, I was like in my late twenties. Like it's this guy's like just after being a teenager who's done so much stuff. And yeah, some of it is like not my cup of tea or whatever, but like he's doing stuff. And and when I looked at my own work, it's like, yeah, I talked about being a writer, but like I didn't produce anything. I had just these scraps of stories that went nowhere. And I just kind of felt like, why aren't I doing something? And I think seeing that seeing that somebody in my town that like some I used to see at shows was so prolific, kind of inspired me to be like, okay, I, I need to start actually like, like actually being a writer and doing stuff. And that was real, real, um, real impetus for me. How did you get into playwriting? Well, uh, the funny thing is, like, I had like you know had a, an ambition to being a writer for a long time, but I always pictured myself as being like a novelist. I never thought of being a playwright at all. Um, if any, in fact, my my early theater experience was bad. Like I, I took some I took one theater class in high school, uh, which I'll always remember because we spent the entire semester. And this is not an exaggeration. Spent the entire semester rehearsing and performing Rent's Seasons of Love, which a which is like a song for me. Like if I was um, extraordinary rendition and brought to the CIA black site, 
that's a song they would play to torture me for hours on end, and it would work. And I you hate, said you I did it for a whole song. semester? Whole semester. We would, we would rehearse it constantly. Um, and the, uh, we'd also do this thing that our teacher called the salmon dance to warm up every day, which um, which involves like putting your hands like uh, on each shoulder, kind of like, like 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 mummy style, and then like twisting yourself in the air like you're a salmon, like jumping up to a higher part of the river. And we would do that every day to kind of warm up. And and the worst part of that was was wasn't just the movement; it was just Curtis. She'd always shriek, "Salmon dance!" Like. Ooh. <laughs> just this incredible like pure theater kid energy like it was it was so off-putting like I, I was like okay that's theater i want nothing to do with it right um so for but i, I started seeing plays like in the, like i go to see like shows the stray cat in my 20s nearly naked and i liked them um but what what kind of put me into playwriting was i was taking this like um film editing course at uh sec and I was, I, I was thinking about like, getting into like writing scripts. So when I saw that Kim Porter's local playwright was offering a, a playwriting class, I'm like, okay, well, that's not screenwriting, but we're like close. So why don't I just go take that workshop? Um, and to kind of, because I, I'm always a little leery about writing teachers, because it's like, um, you look at stuff like Robert McKee's story or like the Save the Cat Guys, and you look at their actual writing credits, it's stuff like they wrote Blank Check. They wrote a Friday the 13th movie. And it's like, well, good for them for selling a script, but why do I want to learn from somebody who wrote a, a, wrote a lousy movie? You know what I mean? You think Blank Check and Friday the 13th are lousy movies? I, I, I'm i just saying, like, if I want to, like, 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 like master the, the, the art of screenwriting. I, 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 see, I see what you're saying, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, um, so I, but I thought Kim was doing a play, read, a play reading of one of her plays, Blue Galaxy. Um, before her workshop. So I went to go see it, and I was blown away by how good it was. Like, it was really funny and it was moving uh and it told me watching that like okay this person knows what they're talking about so i i took her workshop um and i started writing these kind of these these disconnected scenes that slowly kind of started to cohere into a, a whole thing and, and i got i just got the bug from taking that workshop and um and i started going to shows 55 and like performing their variety show stuff and like i just kind of got the bug because like playwriting it's like that um god what, what's that expression they did a seinfeld episode on that the spirit the scalier the spirit the stairwell it's like this expression that like when you when you walk away from a situation you always think right afterwards oh that's what i should have said oh um you know what i mean the, the jerk store called and they're running out they're running out of you yes exactly right exactly i get that phenomenon constantly like i'm always thinking of like funny things or like like smart things to say or even like romantic things they always come to me in retrospect. Mm -hmm. And being a playwright means I could take all this, these bone musts and all this stuff that was in my head and go, okay, I actually can use this stuff and like, like actually use it to good purpose. Like I, I could mine it for material. Because uh, most of playwriting is just conversations. And for mm -hmm. somebody like me, where it's like, I don't really, I'm not super talkative, like in day-to-day -day life. Like I'm, I'm more of a listener. Like playwriting is my opportunity to just talk, talk someone's ear off. And I, I jumped on it. And yeah, it's it, I just find I just find it very freeing, and um, I think part of what I love about it too is there's an immediacy to it, where it's like if I write something, I could probably get it produced in a couple a year or two and actually see the result on stage. Whereas if like you write a book, um, which you still want to do one day, but if you write a novel, like you're gonna wait a couple of years for it even get published, 
are if a film it's like god knows when they'll ever get produced and you know you have to have like a producer and millions of dollars like there's just there's accessibility to playwriting that i find really interesting and like rewarding who have some of your biggest influences been on your playwriting it could be other playwrights or anyone else oh sure sure um i mean like talking about like 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 published like national playwrights like annie baker is a really big one for me um I saw her play at the Antipodes a few years ago at Stray Cat. And mm. that piece inspired me so much. Like that night, I went back home and wrote like the first 20 pages of uh, my play, The Canterbury Tarot. Came from watching that play. Um, I just love her, like her style. And also the fact that like she talks about stuff that I'm into, like, like like the occult and philosophy, but also she has this really interesting, weird sense of humor. And um, it's just, God, it's such a good play. And also stuff like Jose Rivera. Um, I acted in one of his plays, Marisol, which kind of introduced me to his writing, which again is also very poetic with a lot of surrealism. Um, but I'm also very inspired by like local playwrights. Like again, Kim Porter is like uh, my Yoda. Like it's not that just that she's a great teacher, but her writing is like legitimately fantastic. And like I've had the pleasure to act in her plays, to also just see the plays, and just I find like um, her work to be st stellar. And also with um, Cherry Barons, who writes this uh, radio play series called Night of the Chicken. Um, and also she, writes, she also writes really great, like funny, like um, dorky um, short plays. And, I, and I, I love her style too. It's very funny, also very warm. Um, I think a lot of my influences with playwriting is also from like other media. Like I draw a lot of influence from like David Lynch, um, Louis Bunuel, um, you know, um, that comic book work of Grant Morrison, uh, that sort of thing. Like I, I like pulling from different art forms. Uh, music, for example, is a huge part of my process. Like I've literally written, my, my, the first play I ever wrote here was directly inspired by a song. So it's like stuff like that. Like I, I draw a, lo a lot from, from just, you know, what I'm consuming and kind of reflecting on at the time. How did, how did music inspire that? Well, like with ear, for example, uh, one of my favorite records is uh, Mouth by Mouth by this uh, band, His Name is Alive. Hmm. Kind of like, they're like, they're on like 4AD. They're kind of like a, kind of, kind of like a, a goth, pop group that's a great um, name they're fantastic they're so good um one night i was driving home i was listening to this song by them called ear which is about vincent van gogh like cutting off his ear but the song is 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 done where the lead singer is this has this little girl voice and is singing it so it has this kind of sweet almost like innocent kind of sound to it until you listen to the ear lyrics about like you know him, him bleeding down the hall you know severing an ear and there's something about that contrast between like, this this terrible violence and this kind of almost like casual way of describing it. It mm -hmm. like it got to me. And as I'm driving home, I was thinking about okay, the scene popped in my head. What if it's a man and a woman or like on a couch in their apartment, and he gives her his ear, and, and and the way it's framed is like it's like those moments in a relationship where you say I love you for the first time, or you give somebody a really big present, and there's that tension of oh, is this too soon? Is this too much? I thought, how funny would it be to do that as like the, the energy of the scene? There's this monologue of this guy giving her like giving her his her, his girlfriend his severed ear and realizing right away like oh I fucked up this is this is too big a gesture, but like he's so manic and panicked like he just keeps powering through and talking it out, and it was like this two page monologue and I loved it. But I looked at it afterwards I'm like well okay what happens next? That's something I always thought about with Van Gogh too like what happened after the ear. And so that's kind of how the play materialized was was listening to that one song, and also I, I incorporated stuff like uh, sound effects into that play, and also references to other other pieces of music. So so that was like a, a big draw for me.
Um, my latest play, Orange Skies, is also based on a, a song by the band Love, um, Psychedelic Group. They have a song called Orange Skies off their second album, De Capo. And listening to that piece of music kind of made me inspire that 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 play too. I never I never put that together. I I love Love and I love that album. I, I just I didn't put together that, that was from that. That's awesome. It's such a, it's like I, I mean I think for me Forever, Forever Changes is like an amazing record. But like if I had to pick one one of their songs, my favorite. Like I love Orange Skies. It, it is like this very kind of goofy song about like you know like cotton candy skies and whatever. But there's just something in Arthur Lee's voice. It's a little a little foreboding. Like mm-hmm. even when he sounds happy, it always sounds like the happiness is like conditional, or that you know he might drift away into something else anytime. Like there's there's an unsettling quality to his voice that 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 really appeals to me. Once you decided you're going to start getting into plays, um, you know I would imagine that the average person, if they just woke up and said, "Oh, I want, I'm going to I'm going to make a play," they uh, couldn't immediately because they would have to get people interested enough and think that they were legitimate enough to like audition and then go to a place like you know space 55 for example and then like get them to agree to host your event um Mm -hmm. how how was that like getting into that world well um i i I can come at this in two ways in terms of like like production stuff like i got really lucky uh insanely lucky because um, I found like a, 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 I got a, I found a home as a resident writer, which for playwrights is not common. Um, most odd playwrights have to kind of are like wandering Ronin, where they go from like theater to theater to kind of produce their work. But sometimes some people just find a place and they stick to it. Space D five, like I started volunteering there um, years like about like about eight years ago um, because I saw a play Ubu Ra by Alfred Jerry there. Well, I think that had this incredible energy because like when, when you go into this the north in the theater. There's trash all over the floor. They lined the like the, 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 the stands with, and Ubu the uh, King Ubu's throne was a toilet that was on stage, and they played like Johnny Funders with the pre-show music. And I thought like this is like not how I pictured theater. Like it's very punky and weird, and so that kind of was like my signal. Like oh, this is my home now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the more I, I, I so I volunteered there a lot, and I started acting in variety shows and doing late night late night show stuff there. But I was at the space probably for at least about six years or so before I got my first play done. Because um, uh, and at that point it was just because I was around for a while, and uh, we had a hole in the season. And the direct, the artistic director at the time, Dwayne Daniel, said, "Do you have anything?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I have this play here. We could we, we could totally produce it." And he basically said yes about reading it, which is good because I hadn't finished it yet. <laughs> it was not done, but I, I had six months. I'm like, okay, okay, I, I know that. Come like September, there's going to be a show. I have to finish it, which I find is a great motivator for me. Like for me, like if I if I if I have a deadline, I can bang somebody out because I know like I have to produce something. Uh, so for me, that was a challenge. I was like, okay, we're going to have a show in September. I have a few months. That I have a summertime that just knock this play out. Um, so the whole process of being playwright is different for a lot of people. But for me, it's like you know, I write I write the first draft, and then I organize a re- like a private reading where I'll I'll invite um. A group of people that I know, like like other writers and playwrights and directors, to attend the reading, and then we'll, we'll get we'll cast actors to read the script on stage, and we just do a scripted read. Then afterwards, uh, you know, we, I ask for feedback from the audience. Um, and I've done that for all my plays. Uh, it, you know, I've always gotten like that. Always had that 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 uh, script reading ahead of time, um, which has been super helpful because they always end up pointing out things to you, like okay, this seemed kind of weird, or this took me out of the play, or I was confused by this point. 
And when you get those notes, then I go back, I, I do a second draft. And usually by second, third draft, it's ready to go. And at that point, you, you start getting the stuff like, you know, we got to put out like audition notices and cast people. And then you spend maybe about two months rehearsing. Um, and also design stuff too, because you have to find like somebody to do lighting and somebody to do um, like, like makeup and stuff. And with community, the theater level that we're working at, it's like very DIY. So it's like, Sometimes we're doing multiple roles. Like I've done the lights and sound for half of my shows. Like I've been the, I've been the board operator for a lot of it. It's because you know there's there's only so many people in the community that are available. So you kind of have to you know pitch in where you can. Mm -hmm. But I love it, and I, I think one of the reasons why I love it so much is, is you know how it is with writing. It's a very solitary activity. Uh, so for me, like this is how I get this is my extroversion. Like I write I, I write I write the script in private, but then the whole rehearsal process is my opportunity to bond with people, to form friendships and camaraderie and that, that that to me is like the the payoff to that. Where it's like with journalism and other writing that I've done, it's, you know, I find it very rewarding too. But you know, it's very much like it feels like you're throwing pebbles into a void. With playwriting, at least I have that experience of I, I get to be with people. We're making this art together, and then every night I get when the show's running, I get to be in the room and I get to hear an audience react to it. Like I hear them, I hear what they laugh at, and I, and I hear what I hear. I could see what makes them lean in, and I could I can I also I can also feel like the dead pockets of air where I, I can know when something's not working and be able to get that real time like response is great because in what other form of writing you have, can you watch somebody essentially read your work? And, and, and for me too, like being able to put on plays where like we get good houses tells me, okay, people actually want to see this work. Like they actually want to see what I write. So that's, so that's very motivating and encouraging where it's like, I, I mean, I write blogs and stuff too sometimes. And that's like, you don't know how many people read these things. Like, like it's hard. Like, like you can look at metrics; people go insane. But like, you know, you don't get that. You don't get that satisfaction, or at least that confirmation. Like, okay, people actually want to see this. They're here. They're, you know, they're taking two hours out of their day to sit in a sit in an uncomfortable chair and listen to something that you wrote and watch it come alive. And that, I, I, I get so much energy out of that. It, it really sustains me. How do you device sets? Oh, uh, that's. That's more of a director. I mean, that's, that's up to the director. Um, sometimes okay. I'll pitch. Um, when we do actual play stuff, like some people will write and direct their plays. I don't like to direct my own stuff because I like um, I like thinking of my play script as like um, like a blueprint, a blueprint or a recipe. So to me, part of the joy of it is I write this thing, these instructions are creating this work, and I hand it off to the director and the cast. And at that point, like. If they have questions about like clarity stuff, like yeah, I'll definitely pitch in and like tell them like, okay, this is supposed to be that. But I usually kind of let them interpret the work their way because I find it's I think it's more interesting that way. Like because I have like like I have it in my head what this play looks like, and I've had it in my head for years to the point where I'm bored of it now. Like I, like I know what it looks like. Who cares? Like the platonic the platonic ideal of the show is in my brain. Like it can't be replicated on stage and. If I did, so what? That's a, that feels like narcissism to me. It's like the, the the thing about playwriting is I could transmit this idea to somebody else and they make it their way. Mm -hmm. And I love it because a lot of times I'll watch a play and go, okay, I didn't intend for that to happen, but it's so much more interesting that way. Um, so yeah, stuff like sets and like uh, costumes, stuff like I'll, something I'll put in stage directions, like what I what I imagine is on stage or what I want on stage. But um, one thing I learned very quickly from uh, acting in plays is that most of the time, directors and actors do not read stage directions. I mean, overwhelmingly, they, don't, they, they just don't do it. Is that so like, like an arrogance, you think? 
No, I, I think part of it is is on the writer's side. I think a lot of writers try to do what they call directing from the page, where they'll put stuff like blocking notes in the script or like they get like very anal about certain details. And the thing is, like for the director and the actors, like the blocking, that's all their job. That, that that's their art is figuring out how to move on stage and how to position themselves. Um, so I think a lot of a lot of directors and actors ignore stage directions because they don't want to feel constricted. They want they want to be able to have the freedom to interpret the work without being like uh, led by the hand for the whole process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think they're wrong, but what it does mean though, and I've learned this the hard way, is when you write a script, if it's important, it should go in the dialogue. It should always go in the dialogue. It should always be something that's implied in the action or spoken aloud. That if you put something pivotal in the stage direction, they might miss it. Like. As an example, when we we did Ubu Ra at the space years later, we did a revamp where I was I was King Ubu. Um, we were doing rehearsals, and at one point, the director was giving instructions to one of the minor characters. Okay, in this scene, your character is going to go over here and do this. And we had to stop him and go, he can't do that because his character died two pages ago. Like it was in the stage records. Like he got shot. He's dead. Like he can't do anything now. So that's the thing. That's the thing I learned is like the stage directions. Like you can't. If, some, if it's really important, you can't put it in a, a, italized, in a italized text. Because a lot of times, directors, director, they will just gloss over it. Do you have a general creative routine? Uh, no. <laughs> I wish I did. Um, no, more I, more I, people than not, from what I can recall, that I've asked that sort of question to on this podcast have like said no, which I think is interesting. I tried. Like, uh, like I read that book, uh, Stephen King's On Writing. We talked about like writing 500 words a day, which I've tried doing that. And sometimes I make it, sometimes I don't. Um, it, I think it's a project more than anything else. Like if, if, when I get when I get when I get on a I start on a project, like um, you know, I'll put in like, da- like like daily work on it, and then I'll have these fallow periods where I'll write scraps here and there, but nothing big. So it, it, it varies, you know. Like um, like right now I'm kind of in like um what I call more of a processing stage where I'm just, you know, I'm consuming a lot. I'm watching a lot of movies, reading a lot of books and like kind of woodshedding information to get ready to write my next thing. Um, I feel, I feel it's kind of like, you know, a squirrel storing in their nuts for winter is kind of where I'm at mentally right now. Uh, just kind of gathering stuff. By information, you mean just kind of like inspiration for characters or a, or a, like, are, are you specifically looking for certain things that you can put into your uh, future work or is it more of just like a through osmosis sort of thing uh kind of all of the above like i i keep what's called a commonplace book where like when i'm reading when i'm reading when i'm reading, when I'm reading anything like i will notate and like uh underline what I'm, what I'm reading that's interesting to me and when i finish a book i'll put it aside I'll, I'll take everything that i underline and i'll put it in this book so like a repository hmm. of like quotes and like you know stuff to look up later um so i draw a lot of inspiration from those books the commonplace books i have but also, like, I, I know my next project is I'm writing a play about black takes place of a, a black metal band. So I'm, in, I'm so I'm starting to do some research into like uh, kind of that culture and the history of it, just so it's gonna get inspiration ideas from that. And uh, yeah, so, so I'm kind of just kind of just pulling pulling info from that. And I'll, also, I have an, another play that uh, I finished back in uh, just was it November. Um, it, it's it's still like in the draft one phase. I'm doing rewrites for it, so I'm, I'm reading material to kind of give me inspiration to kind of broaden the scope of that play. I like where it's going, but it feels a little, um, some of it feels a little superficial. So I'm trying to get some more information on it to kind of uh, to flush those characters out and their situation out a little bit more. 
So it's not like a particular, like, you know, time of the day or, you know, anything like that. It's just kind of like you try to get to it when you can. And then, you know, if it works, it works. Yeah, I I try to go from a perspective of like, I'm not one of those like at eight o'clock I have to be writing. It's more like, okay, I'll devote an hour or two of my day to to this creative stuff. And those when that happens just depends on the day to day basis. So long as I hit, as long as I I I'm, I get that time in, I'm happy. Um, but yeah, I've tried doing the regimented like every day. I'll write at X amount of time, or I'll do this at this particular hour. And it doesn't work because you know I have to go run errands, or I, I have a, a a thing to do. It's just easier to give myself that flexibility of being like, okay, so long as I I find an hour somewhere to do this, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I'm, I'm, an hour is roughly what I go for as well. So yeah, that, that makes sense. What, uh, what are you, uh, specifically looking to, as far as the black metal thing is concerned, like, where are you getting your info from? Well, uh, with that one, it's, um, you know, some of the, some of the usual, some of the, some of the basic sort of like, you know, Lords of Chaos, that book. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have this book, uh, I might have a copy of it. Here it is. Uh, I just got this one from verse, um, repeater books called Tonight's a World We Bury, which is a book about like um, black metal, but also about leftist politics, like uh, socialism mm. and anarchism and how it affects the, how, it, how it's a part of that community. It's really interesting to me because when you think black metal, you think of like, you know, Nazism and you think of like, mm-hmm. you know, like radical conservatism. So it's interesting to read a book that's about like the other side of the spectrum. It's a bit more positive and like, well, way more positive than that. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, and also I'm reading a lot of mythology because um, part of the play, not going too deep into it, the basic idea of the play is that the band is a female, all-female band called the Morrigan, who styled themselves after the Celtic uh, triple goddess, the Morrigan, who's like three different gods as one. Um, and so the play kind of deals with that mythology, but also deals, it also takes place in the real world and like, it, it all takes place in their rehearsal space, basically. Mm-hmm. Because I realized my last play, Orange Skies, has like 26 scene changes it, it's ridiculous there's a, there's a lot of locations so i want to write a play that's all it takes place in just one spot like it's just one fixed area and kind of put that restriction on myself when i was writing it like okay no matter what happens it has to take place in this squat it can't go anywhere else it's the it's um, the breakfast club for black metal bingo yeah that, <laughs> no that's actually that, that's really dead on um yeah it's that that that's basically the kind of what i'm trying to go for is, is, is like that trapped room feeling and um so like I'm also reading like mystery novels, um, and uh, also reading a lot of comic books too, kind of, kind of get some visual inspiration. So, um, and also I, I also just read stuff that's not connected to anything, just like poetry or like a history of books, just to kind of, you know, keep keep the brain keep keep the brain fertile. Uh, yeah, keep, stay keep sharp. Ideas sprouting. Exactly. Because yeah. you never know. I, I find little interesting tidbits all the time that years later end up blossoming into something else. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and I try I try to keep myself open to that sort of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, my last question, I may have follow-up questions depending on what you say, but my last question has to uh, do with wrestling. Do you want to talk about wrestling? Oh, hell yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I love it. I uh, read something with you two or three years ago. I think it was connected to the Phoenix Art Museum. You were doing something with the Phoenix Art Museum. All right. But you were, you you, you talked about there being parallels between wrestling and theater and i was wondering oh. if you could uh if you could speak about that a little more of course well you know i will admit to my shame that i i used to be one of those people who thought wrestling was stupid um because you know my, my idea of wrestling used to be hulk hogan like oh yeah just some 
about to just roided out dumb guys shouting at each other. Like, like who cares? Um, but then years ago, I, I started to um, at place where I live, the complex has like a, a shared community gym that we all use. And they had like a treadmill. I used, so I used to go in there in the evenings and use a treadmill. Um, and there's a TV they had in that gym that was always stuck to one channel, which is USA. Um, so every time I go in, it'd be playing like run, it'd be playing like you know Monday Night Raw or SmackDown, and and the remote was missing. So you either could turn the TV on or off, or you couldn't change the channel. So I kind of was forced to watch wrestling while I'm like on the treadmill, and it hit me one day. I'm watching it. It was this this it was this one event. It was the Festival of Friendship of Chris Jericho and Kevin Owens. I'm watching it. And I'm like, this is this is like action. This is theater. Like this isn't like this is this actually is like a play. I'm watching. Like, it's like a scene in the play. Like there's dialogue, there's character dynamics, there's like uh, there's like revelations, there's deception, and yeah, there's also like lariats and like drop kicks and stuff too. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's like okay, like it's funny because when I was watching wrestling, I realized like oh, this is all the stuff I like about performance art. Like um, like like when I look at wrestling, I think of like stuff like Ryan Avery, uh, or like the stuff I used to do with uh, called the Yellow Sign, where it's like it's about like it's about antagonizing an audience. It's about like. You know, it's about staying in character no matter what happens around you. Um, so that kind of stuff I thought was really interesting to me, wrestling. And plus also, it's just, basically, what you, what you see is like, yeah, wrestling is fake, but what they do to their bodies isn't. And the the, the, the feats of athleticism they do, like, um, when you watch luchadors, um, when you see them running on the top rope and not fall, or we see them, like, people somersaulting through, um, through a table, through a table from, like, that, from a balcony, like, that stuff's all real. Like that, that mm-hmm. that's actual like people putting their bodies on the line to express something. And so so it's like yeah, so that part of it, uh, you know, it's it's fun and it's very involving. But um I guess to get back to your question, uh, I know it's a bit of a detour there. Um I, mean, I, want, know, I, want, I wanted to say really quick, uh so, sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to throw in this anecdote really quick. Um uh, my my dad, he loves to tell the story. I li- I used to live in South Florida, and my dad loves to tell the story about him uh, getting me tickets for Christmas to see the 1995 Royal Rumble in Tampa. And uh, so we went to that, but uh, he he's told me later that the reason that he took me to that was so that I could see like up close, like how fake it was. Um, as if, and I remember distinctly, first of all, like there was blood on the mat, like when we left, like it, it, it but also everything else that like went into it it seems like uh the popular uh opinion amongst like non-wrestling fans is that none of that matters any of the acting any of the acrobats storyline anything like that because it's like fake um which i think is crap personally oh yeah it's nonsense and and i think it kind of is silly too because that's a, a that's only that's a metric we only apply to wrestling like we don't look at like actual actors we don't we don't look at keanu reeves going that's fake Right, Donald like, Wick shoots him in the face is fake. Like, like, like the fakeness doesn't like detract from our enjoyment of it. Like, yeah, we know it's we know it's fiction, and wrestling is a fiction. Um, what makes it interesting is that there is elements of reality to it. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the the actors on stage, the performers on stage might legitimately hate each other, mm-hmm. and that might come through in their work. Or like, you know, or like, you know, you get like something like Jeff Hardy, for example, where he might get arrested for like a DUI. And then a week later, like Samoa Joe will come on stage and cut like a promo where he's making fun of him, and he brings up the DUI. So there's a so there's that, that there's that 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 interplay between like reality and fantasy that I think is really interesting. 
but also I think what where wrestling and theater to me really converge is that it's all about the audience reaction. And, and, and that's what makes it, wrestling fascinating to me is how unpredictable it is where you can see the audience can turn on a performer and or they can like elevate a performer. Like somebody could be a villain, but they get so much cheers that they, they end up becoming what's called a baby face, right? Like they end up mm-hmm. becoming like the hero because the audience loves them so much. And, I, and so there's that, there's that interplay. And also just stuff like, like certain performers like Orange Cassidy, for example, is so somebody like, I look at him performing, I'm like, he's Buster Keaton, basically. Like if oh, Buster yeah. Keaton could touch a guy, that, that, that's he'd be Orange Cassidy. Um, so to me, it's the closest thing we have to modern vaudeville. It's left is like it is wrestling because you know you, you have feats of daring, you have like you know you have burlesque stuff, you have comedy, um, and yeah, you have like the deathmatch stuff that's like that's like that's like the grand guignol blood everywhere and barbed wire. Like there's a little something for everybody, which I think is really interesting. Um, that's fascinating. I never put together like the, how that there would be that similarity. How you just like know that if something's working or not working just based on like audience reaction. That's Plays and wrestling have a lot more in common than I mean, I know wrestling's already like a play, but as far as like proper theater or whatever, like that's that's fascinating. Um well, it, well and too, like I, I also think it's interesting too, because like, when we look at how uh, wrestling is done, like they have the matches are predetermined and they usually have these beats. They 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 plan ahead of time, like, okay, we're gonna do this spot, this spot, this spot. I mean they kind of alternate on the fly depending on whether or not there's an accident or or not the audience reacts a certain way. And and I mentioned this because like when I used to do um sixty five used to do a lot of late night programming. And my friend Kevin and I did a show called Hollis's Traveling Treehouse, which is like, a, which is like um, a peewee playhouse type of show that we do once a month. And we structured it almost like a wrestling match where it's like, okay, we have, we have an outline of how the show goes. And we have a bunch of beats that we'll, 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 that we're trying to hit. But there's no script. We just know that we have these characters who start here and they end here. And in between, we have like four or five different ideas of like what stuff they'll do during the, during the, during the hour. The rest of it is kind of improvised. It's it's structured improv. And wrestling is like structured is the same thing. It's structured improv. They know like, okay, like um Rey Mysterio is gonna do this move at this point, and then this guy's gonna do this. But the in-between stuff, the connective tissue to get those moments, that's something they have to kind of call on the fly and kind of they have to kind of react to their environment and to the crowd, how what what they're giving them. So that's that to me is what I find really fascinating about wrestling is that yeah, it's it's like it's script entertainment. But there's no other scripted entertainment that's available of that size where it's like a lot of it's improv. A lot of it is just spur of the moment stuff. And like, and from week to week, you know, they could have these intricate plans. They can go, okay, this person's going to be the champion for the next six months. And they go, dude, they're going to do this and they're going to do that. And that person gets an injury and next week they have to drop the belt to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So, so, there's, so no, matter, no matter how much they plan stuff out, accidents happen. They have to make adjustments. So it's very it's a very living and unpredictable art form, which I think is very fascinating to me. Like it's improv where you could you could possibly kill someone. Right. Exactly. Right. It's it's improv of real human stakes to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. uh, In 2021, I started watching wrestling again regularly and started watching uh, A.W. Dynamite. And uh, my partner hadn't like watched much wrestling other than like we had like you know watch like particularly absurd matches like from the 90s or something like here and there but just like a the amount of potential emotional investment into it and b like you were saying like a lot of it is the the popular opinion of it is that it it solely consists of like meatheads which like that doesn't like not exist ever in wrestling obviously well you know like somebody like mjf for instance 
who in my opinion is like one of the best entertainers in the world currently but there's i mean he's he's a high school jock or whatever but there's like clearly that like overlap of like yeah you you you've uh spent some time in theater too like for sure yeah what are you what are you watching these days as far as as far as wrestling goes uh i'm kind of the same boat like i I, i'm mostly an AEW guy like um like i I watch wwe like the pay-per-view sometimes because the big shows are fun but week to week their shows are just they're too long there's not enough payoff to the stories that they do. Whereas AEW, I kind of feel like, you know, barring catastrophe, most of the time, like, there's payoff to what they do. Like, there's, like, them, if, if the character's in a story, there's usually going to be some kind of satisfying resolution to it. So mm-hmm. far, at least. Um, so, yeah. So, I love, I, I mean, I love, um, so I usually watch Dynamite. And um, sometimes I'll watch ROH. Um, the Ring of Honor shows can be hit and miss. But, like, I, I, there's just so much in the AEW shows that I love. Like, my one criticism with that company is I, I still feel like their their women's wrestling's pretty weak. Like they just compared to WWE, time. like WWE women's wrestling is amazing. Oh yeah, it's it, 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 not necessarily the talent. I, I do think there's a lot of talented performers in AEW. It's they just don't get enough time. Like they get maybe two segments a show, which is not mm-hmm. enough time to build the vision. And like, yeah, so that's my big criticism with, with that company. Is I do feel that the women don't get enough. They don't get a fair shot to do what they do, but. It, just like seeing like like uh, luchas like Vikingo and some of, some of those performers like they just do amazing stuff that just leaves me in awe when I'm watching. Oh yeah, no, they're they're amazing. And yeah, with the women's wrestling, like there isn't like the um, and to an extent with the men's wrestling too. But but like you know Jamie Hader for instance or uh, Jade Cargill or whatever, like who are like you know amazing, but like get like very little. There's 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 very little character development. Yeah, like I mean, the problem too, like women, women's division, it's like Britt Baker gets all the promo time, mm-hmm. so like she gets to talk all the time and, and gets all these character moments. But someone like Jimmy Hader, who actually was the champion for a while, she barely got to talk. And it's like, why isn't she talking? She's the champion. Like she should be like, she should be at like, the focus of these storylines, not her friend. And mm-hmm. it's like, so that part is weird to me. But yeah, like it does feel like they're no, they they don't get enough time to develop personalities or characters. Um, I do think it's, it's it's improved. I think compared to like two years ago, it was it, it was much more dire. Where now it's like they have some more pe- they have more stories, more people. But yeah, that to me that to me that is definitely I think the company's big feeling is like their their women's division is like yeah compared to like uh, WWE or Impact is like it's just not even close. Yeah, um, yeah, I've, I've R- R- ROH is is a is a big ask because that's like an additional two hours a week though uh, I have been trying to keep it because since like Eddie Kingston is over there I've been trying to uh, Eddie yeah I, I've, I've Eddie, been tr- Eddie's I've, the guy trying to keep yeah he's so good um are you team are you team CM Punk or team Elite oh I don't know how much that's... of this am I gonna I'm gonna include in the final recording but like yeah we'll we'll see where this goes that's fine team Elite uh, like uh, Punk's fine. I, I... I've never been a big punk guy. Like, again, he's great on the mic. I mean, he's, he's listening to him like, like um, the feuds he had of Eddie and MGF are great. Um, but yeah, like, like I'd, I'd rather watch like I'd rather watch Kenny wrestle. Is what it boils down to. Like in terms of actually being in the ring, I just find the elite more interesting. Um, and that whole situation, who was right, who was wrong, I don't know. Like again, I'm I, I'm not really like that. I don't really particularly care about the backstage drama of that. Like it's it's interesting to think about, but like. You know, it's a big whatever to me. Um, Do you listen I'm to Jim Cornette's podcast ever? 
<laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> if if you like, do, I, if you because that's the only podcast that I listen to on a regular basis, actually. And if you listen to enough of it, I used to be all about Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks. And if you listen to enough of it, you're like, yeah, no, fuck those guys. Like he just has a way of like brainwashing you after it's like it's like a cult sort of thing. But yeah. Oh yeah. And, and, you know, and, and and I do respect Cornette. Like, like when we when you need somebody who knows about wrestling history, that he's the guy. Like, he's like a walking encyclopedia of like territory stuff. Like, he knows his shit. Uh, I don't know. But, but when I've heard him talk, I, I kind of feeling like stuff like modern Japan stuff and like stuff that's more sports entertainery stuff. Stuff that's more goofy. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. Yeah. And to me, like that's why I love. Like, I love Danhausen. I love. Oh, I love yeah. dumb gimmicks. I, the, the more ridiculous wrestling is, that's the more I enjoy. It. Like I love luchasaurus being an actual dinosaur in canon like like give right. me that give me all that goofy stuff i love it yeah i mean that was that was that was like you know the best thing about like you know early i i, I really do not like the attitude era um yeah. even though like there's parts of it that like you know they'll show a clip from it and like i i i, I really respect the absurdity of it but it the the jerry springerness of it is like uh is kind of cringeworthy to me personally versus like you know, the early 90s sort of thing where, uh, you know, the days before The Undertaker started coming out in a motorcycle to American Badass, but when he was just like, you know, a dead guy who was like literally come back to life and has all of his power in this urn and like a duplicate Undertaker could come to life and then fight him in an Undertaker versus Undertaker match. Like that shit's cool. I love the, yeah, exactly. And, and, and you're right. Like the Jerry Springerness of it is very accurate. Like I feel like when I, when I try to watch the attitude stuff, I'm like, like, I just get I get so over it really quickly. It's like I get it. Like oh yeah, you know hot chicks. You know oh bad attitudes. Like come on, dude. This is, this is like adolescent garbage. Fuck it, man. Yeah. Like yeah, like yeah. When I was fifteen, this was one of the coolest stuff ever. But I'm not fifteen anymore. Thank God for that. Well, thank you so much for. I I I just thought it would be fun to hijack my own podcast to like talk about uh talk about wrestling. But uh thank thank you so much for for talking with me today. It was, it was a very, it's a real pleasure. And uh, yeah, I, I'm more than happy to hijack <laughs> to talk about wrestling anytime. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please consider setting up a small monthly donation at patreon.com backslash the creative curmudgeon or consider making a one time donation at venmo.com backslash the creative curmudgeon. Until next time, so long. 